Section 47 of G. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano. G. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns. The New Witness, 1922, by G. K. Chesterton, Section 47, Bethlehem and the Great Cities, by G. K. Chesterton. The burden upon us is that we are not ruled by men of ordinary ignorance, but of extraordinary ignorance. Of many of the millionaires who so rule us, we may even say that they have grown rich by their extraordinary ignorance, in the sense of their extraordinary indifference to anything except growing rich. A man who devoted his whole life to collecting stamps would have a rather narrow outlook on history and humanity, if only because it would be limited by the institution of the postage. His album could not very well contain a yellow stamp of the time of Confucius, or a green stamp with the dragon of King Arthur. But the mind of a man collecting stamps will be much broader than that of a man merely collecting coins in the sense of money. That sort of numismatist is narrower than the philatelist because of the nature, because by the nature of the case he collects no coin except current coin. The numismatics of one age and country. The stamp collector, with extended view, can at least survey the world from China to Peru, if not from Confucius to Montezuma. The philatelist's eye, in a fine frenzy rolling, can glance, if not from earth to heaven, at least from Australasia to Alaska. When a man interested in money, he's interested in the money of the moment and of the market nearest to him. Hence the very rich will generally be found to be very uneducated, not only in the sense of not having been educated, but in the sense of not having educated themselves. Such a man often boasts of being self-educated, but it would be truer to say that he is self-restricted, or even self-benighted. And as it is with the plutocrats, so it is naturally enough with their servants in plutocratic politics. Their ignorance is not normal ignorance, the ignorance of things known to Macaulay's schoolboy. Macaulay, for instance, describes with derision the excitement of the old Duke of Newcastle when being told by somebody that Cape Breton was an island. I doubt whether many people knew anything about Cape Breton, or whether it is an island, but as in the case of corruption, the awful examples of the 18th century are mild compared to the mildest gossip of the 20th. And a man told me the other day that two politicians recently got an atlas to look for the Dardanelles, and proceeded to look for it in the western end of the Mediterranean. That is not being ignorant of geography. I am grossly ignorant of geography myself. That is being ignorant of daily life, of common human speech, of proverbial expressions, popular quotations, and music hall songs. It is like not having been taught to talk, though indeed we may say that politicians have only been taught to talk and not to listen. 
but I heard the other day an even more extraordinary example of nescience than not knowing that the Dardanelles are in the neighborhood of Turkey. I was told that a politician, when informed that the Vatican was making some inquiries about Zionism and the Palestinian problem, said with complete innocence, Oh, what has the Pope to do with Palestine? I do not know what answer was given. I do not know whether anyone explained how the Pope came to concern himself with certain curious and remote incidents that are sometimes alleged to have occurred there. Those are only two examples out of many, and I could at random give a third not unconnected with the second. I was once at the same dinner table with a newspaper proprietor who regarded himself and was regarded as the dictator of Europe and who really was, to far too great an extent, the dictator of England. He also shared the morbid and unnatural curiosity of His Holiness at the Vatican. He also was interested in Palestine, and in the course of conversation, I learned that he had never even heard of the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem. I suppose he had seen crusaders in pictures or fancy dress balls, but he had no notion of what they did, and certainly no notion that what they did was to conquer and make Palestine a part of Europe for a hundred years, filling it with abbeys like those of Glastonbury or St. Andrews, and castles like those of Conway and Carnarvon. Now that is a point that interests me a great deal, because the traces of it are very obvious to any traveler who happens to have been there. The first fact that strikes him about Jerusalem is that it is a medieval town, long before it strikes him, especially as an oriental town. It has that curious combination of coziness and defiance that belongs to the walled cities and painted pales and fences of the life of the Middle Ages. The latest walls were built by the successors of the Saracens, but they are not, in our sense, Saracenic. Most of the windows and gates are in their whole spirit Gothic. The Franciscan, going by with his beard and brown habit under those gray Gothic walls, seems to be entirely in the picture, and even in the conventional picture. It is rather the Arab coming in with his colored turban, or Bernius who seems for the moment, if only by a sort of optical illusion, to be a stranger in one string from a far-off eastern land. I had a rather parallel experience when I first saw Rome. In the case of Rome, as in the case of Jerusalem, people seem to have lost their own impressions in the disproportionate emphasis of detail among guides and guidebooks. The general impression of Rome is not the Forum, or even the Colosseum. We might almost say that they are curiosities in the neighborhood. We might almost say that they are to St. Peter's what Stonehenge is to Salisbury Cathedral. The overwhelming impression is not that of pagan, but of papal Rome, but especially Rome of the Renaissance popes. I say it is the overwhelming impression. It would not be to everybody a pleasing impression. It might annoy a man, and only if he were too narrowly Puritan, but also if he were too narrowly medieval. It did annoy Ruskin, and might well have annoyed William Morris. Nor is their criticism a thing merely to be criticized. There is in that classical exuberance much that is really florid and false. But that is the impression. 
and it is quite certainly the stamp and imprint of the great popes of the Renaissance. Renaissance Rome is not merely heathen, any more than Jerusalem is merely Jewish, or merely Muslim, and those huge fountains where the Tritons look like Titans in the twilight, they have nonetheless been really baptized by those waters. The cross on the top of the primeval obelisks is not a contradiction, but a culmination. The culmination culminates on that high column, where Our Lady stands at once vanquishing and exalting the symbol of Diana, with her foot upon the horns of the moon. I have mentioned these two cases for the sake of a truth, which any real traveler will have found out for himself. Our recent and rather provincial tradition greatly exaggerated the proportion of such places that is pagan or barbaric, or even merely primeval. It was much more than we were taught to suppose of the traces of civilization, and even of our own civilization. But as my memory returns to Palestine by this rambling path, I remember what may really be called, in a deeper and more subtle sense, an exception. Palestine itself was filled, so to speak, with Norman castles and Catholic shrines. And in so far as Jerusalem does often suggest the Muslim, it is chiefly because the Muslim does suggest the Crusades. But there was one experience in Palestinian travel that really is something more than merely historical, something that is too human to be historical. It is certainly not pagan, but it is in a sense primeval. It is the one thing that really does seem to be connected with Christianity, and not with Christendom. I have called it primeval because there is, in this greatest of all origins, an atmosphere truly to be called original. This one vision really does primarily suggest pilgrimages and shrines and medieval spires or medieval spears. It does rather suggest ancestral dawns and mystical abysses and the end of chaos and the creation of light. I mean the experience of Bethlehem. The heart of Bethlehem is a cavern, the sunken cave, which is the traditional scene of the nativity. Nine times out of ten, these traditions are true. This is wholly rarely the truth about the countryside, for it is into the subterranean stables that the people have driven themselves, and they are by far the likeliest places of refuge for a homeless group. It is curious to consider what number and varied versions of the Bethlehem story have been turned into pictures. No man who understands Christianity can complain that they are all different from each other, and different from the truth, or rather the fact. It is the point of the story that it happened in one particular time and place that might have been any particular human place, in Sunnyside Colonnade in Italy, or a snow-laden cottage in Spain. It is yet more curious that some modern artists have put themselves on merely topographical truth yet have made much of this truth about the dark and sacred underground. It seems strange that they have emphasized the one case in which realism really trumps realism. It seems strange that they have emphasized the one case in which realism really trumps reality. There is something beyond expression moving the imagination and the idea of the holy fugitives being lower than the very land as if the earth had swallowed up the glory of God, like gold buried in the ground. Perhaps the image is too deep for art, even in the sense of dealing in another dimension. 
for it might be difficult for any artist to convey simultaneously the divine secret of the cavern and cavalcade of the mysterious kings trampling the rocky and shaking the cavern roof yet the medieval painting would often represent parallel scenes on the same canvas the medieval popular theatre which the guildsmen working about the streets was sometimes a structure of three feet with one scene above another something of the sort reminds our childish dreams in peter pan and the comparison is more profane than it might be for there is a christian version of peter pan that is more real than the real one a version of peter pan in which there is less of pan and more of peter a more serious parallel having something of the indescribable image can be found in those tremendous works of francis thompson east ah east of himalay dwell the nations underground hiding from the shock of day from the sun's uprising sound but no poetry even of the greatest poets will ever express all that is hidden in that image of the light of the world born in that subterranean sun only these prosaic notes remain to suggest what one individual felt about bethlehem and i give them to the christmas number of this paper end of section 47 recording by greg giordano newport ritchie florida